3: Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week it's a Seriously Jane Austen special, all about Emma and the different ways it's been adapted over the years.
4: We'll be talking about the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, the TV adaptation starring Kate Beckinsale and Romola Garai, and of course Clueless, with our guests Emma Whipday and Alice Vincent.
3: (music) Hello. Hello. And welcome to a very special episode of Seriously. I'm so excited. This is a Jane Austen special episode of Seriously. Jane Austen, I feel like is a figure that is very, looms large in both of our lives, Caroline, but maybe one that we haven't actually brought into Seriously discussions very often.
4: No, and I guess that's maybe because the real mania for adapting Austin novels hasn't really happened while we've been doing this podcast you know I like to think of it as a like from about 1995 to 2005 TV networks movie producers and so on were all for like where's my Colin Firth in Pride and Prejudice, deliver me that, etc. So yeah, there is a great big canon of Austen adaptations that you can access, but not that many contemporary ones coming out.
3: That is so true. And I, do, I have to say, like the Austen mania that, that peaked really in 1995 is one of my favourite topics. I wrote uh, in the New Statesman about this a couple of years ago. And yeah, 1995 was when we had Ang Lee's Sensibility. And we had a cinematic release for a 95 Persuasion. We had Clueless in 1995, which as we'll talk about more later is an Emma adaptation. We had BBC's Pride and Prejudice. And then they also started doing the two Emmas that came out in 1996, which were Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate Beckinsale. And then I feel like there's a second resurgence, as you say, it goes on slightly longer in kind of 2008 it's like 2007 yeah. 2008 when we have like a bbc sense and sensibility and a bbc emma there was a the pride and prejudice that was kira knightley, the Keira knightley and like, yeah there is this as you say these two kinds of periods of really really popular austin stuff and we're now like 10 years after at least the latest one of those so it's maybe not so big at the moment but maybe it's due a third <laughs> revival who knows
4: i think because Lots of these adaptations are a little bit in the past. They've become, for a lot of people, I think us included, synonymous with a certain type of comfort watch, right? Totally. So you turn back to an Austen film or TV show when you want a safe, cosy, familiar, reliable hit of happiness, really. Um, And so I think partially for that reason as well, we felt like they were worth examining properly and separating them out from this kind of homogenous mass of bonnets and making eyes in the ballroom and actually saying what is this really about and why do we like it
3: yeah and um, there was a, a documentary recently on on sky arts here in the uk by like known contrarian giles Corran, who basically said that he hated Austen and the kind of revelation—it was literally called "Why I Hate Jane Austen" or some some mm. idiot title like that. And the whole the whole point of it is his revelation that actually Jane Austen adaptations are to blame for the fluffy feminized portrayal of Austen in the media, and that really you know the books at the heart of it are so different to that. And he's kind of been tricked into not seeing the virtues of the books by these kind of like stupid Austin fans, which is obviously a ridiculous narrative. But it does pose interesting questions because obviously to make something a mainstream popular movie in modern tastes, you do have to adapt the source material, adapt, is a key part of the word. The novel, you can't just lift it from its pages and have a successful TV adaptation mm. or even a comprehensible TV adaptation. So that's something that we're going to talk about a bit as well.
4: It's also something to do with Jane Austen herself in that it's not just the case that, like Giles Corrin identified, you can sort of say that you can discount the adaptations, but the books of classics and always have been regarded as such. Mm. You know, Jane Austen, in her lifetime... And then definitely the defenders of her reputation have fought since for her to be seen as a serious and major novelist as opposed to a kind of frivolous writer of women's stories. Mm -hmm. So it is a serious thing to be looking at her work and its cultural heritage as well as it's just really fun sometimes
3: it is really fun and we're going to start with one of the funnest ones i mean seriously fans will know that i really sense and sensibility is potentially the austin novel and adaptation that is closest to my heart but we're going to start with i think probably one of the most fun austins which is emma and it's so fun for me because it's really kind of like the it's like austin squared it's like all the cases of like mistaken identity and confusion and like troubled mismatched love in the extreme (laughs) which is great
4: Mm. and a heroine being blind to her true feelings Mm -hmm. and a man being like moody and overly up himself and all that kind of stuff yes it has all of the classic austin tropes all tied together in the titular heroine Emma, who Austin famously said in Emma, she'd created a heroine that no one but herself would like. And that I think (laughs) makes it worth our time as well, because people love to identify themselves with Lizzie Bennet, or to a lesser extent, maybe Anne Elliot from Persuasion. I don't know that many people who would say that Emma Woodhouse is their literary ideal.
3: Yeah, totally. And she... It's kind of awful. <laughs> she's yeah, actually she like is. really awful. Like if I met Emma now in my life, I would. she's so snobby and there's some, something so bitchy and mean about her, but that is a much more fun character in many ways. It's delightful to see all these scenes where she's like really horrible, sometimes on purpose, sometimes kind of by accident. So yeah, I, it's a great Austin and a really exciting one to talk about with each other and with some of our special guests. So exciting. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. That's the opening line to Emma, Jane Austen's novel published in 1815, which follows the story of Emma and her disastrous attempts at matchmaking.
4: Along the way, she rejects various suitors she tries to set her friends up with different eligible men in her community and the whole time everything is not quite what she thinks it is
3: yeah so there's a whole host of of characters that emma tries to matchmake so she lives at home with her dad and the other figure that's most often in the scene of her house is mr knightley who's the brother of her sister's husband so he's kind of her brother-in-law in law and Mm. he's been on he's known her since she was a, a very tiny baby and mr knightley kind of chastises her she constantly tries to set people up around her so harriet smith this penniless person that she she meets and kind of takes pity on and thinks she can kind of introduce into higher society in a way that's very patronizing and kind of quite snobby of emma She first decides to set her cap towards Mr. Elton, who's the vicar nearby, who's also obsessed with wealth and status. Then along comes this charming man out of the blue, Frank Churchill. And we've also got the niece of one of Emma's elderly neighbours. That's Jane Fairfax, the niece of Miss Bates. And there are all these figures kind of collide in a slight nightmare of Emma's matchmaking. And she gets very confused as to who's actually interested in who and As with many Austen heroines, she also gets confused as to her own feelings for some of the other male characters in the novel.
4: We're going to start by talking about faithful adaptations of Jane Austen's Emma, and to do so, we're joined by my friend Emma, also known (laughs) as Dr. Emma Whipday eminent Shakespearean academic and author of a play called
2: Emma. That's right. So... We should call this bit Emma on Emma. Emma on Emma, (laughs) I was actually named for Emma as well. Oh, really? So it's kind of Emma squared on Emma. Oh, that's
4: so cool. Fascinating. So... Tell us a little bit about the process of adapting the novel into a play when you want to keep it as close as possible.
2: Well, I knew the novel quite well and had read it lots of times, but I'd also seen the adaptations quite a few times, particularly the Gwyneth Paltrow, Jeremy Northern one. So for me, the first thing was not watching that for ages and then (laughs) going back and checking afterwards that I wasn't stealing anything directly from it. But what I really wanted to do was lift as much of the Austen dialogue as possible because... It's beautiful, it's gorgeously constructed, and because she does so well at hiding clues within the dialogue in a really subtle way. So things you wouldn't notice on the first read, where you realise that Frank Churchill's actually saying something about Jane Fairfax, but it really does read as Emma, Mm. as him talking about Emma. So I just lifted practically all the dialogue, and then started cutting back and slimming down and trying to preserve the plotting. And I think the trickiest thing in that was... Her plots are so tight and so carefully constructed, but lots of them happen in a mission. So someone mentions in passing something that happened a while ago or something happens in a carriage Mm. and trying to put those in a single static location on stage in someone's house. That was the point where I had to start moving things around and adding my own dialogue and sort of trying to shape it without without losing those kind of narrative surprises that she puts in.
4: Mm. Was there a particular scene that was the hardest to do? I think the picnic scene where I Mr. Oogie is yes. so, <laughs> so so iconic, done. isn't it? Yeah. and
3: I think badly done. That's the line that they go for in the Gwyneth Paltrow one, right? And that's yes. the one that is so iconic in so many people's minds. Yes.
2: And I mean, I kept it because I feel like it's such a horrible line if you're empathising with Emma at that moment, and you should feel told off and belittled and small. But it also says a lot about that slightly uncomfortable. in their relationship where he's so much older and he was like a brother or like a father figure almost and so you need that slight kind of uncomfortable frisson if maybe you've been picking up on the sexual tension between them and then he tells her off like that So, that moment was hard to write because I just over identified with her, and I find it horrible (laughs) that he tells her off. But the picnic as a whole was hard because there are all those points where Emma says things like to Frank Churchill, it's rather too much to be talking nonsense for seven silent people. And so, you have to have seven silent people on stage (laughs) and two people just speaking to one another, and everyone else, normally in big group scenes, I try and have a couple of lines from each person regularly just to give a sense of the ensemble and what everyone's thinking. But in that scene, everyone has to be thinking something silently And we need to get a sense of that while only they are talking as the kind of awkwardness gradually ramps up and up and up. Mm. And then you have the only time Jane Fairfax actually says something in a group where she talks about how you can recover from engagements if you form them hastily in a public place. And that's too frank, but has to seem not too frank. Mm. So I feel like that's something where she captures all the cross currents really beautifully in the book because we're swooping in and out of people's heads and faces and then mainly staying with Emma, but trying to do that as an ensemble scene was... Yeah, very tricky that's amazing
3: i've never had to think about that scene in that way before mm. and it re- i think i guess some of the stuff that austin is so good at is those kinds of like gestures towards what people are internally thinking that comes yes. very much not in dialogue sometimes that must be really really hard to try and get that across when people aren't speaking
2: definitely and i think normally i wouldn't attempt it i would just write something for someone to say mm. so that was the only time i felt like austin had what she did there had to be respected there had to be that silent awkwardness but the kind of comparable thing she does that's tricky is when she's writing proposals, she tends to not give any dialogue but imply the dialogue. So she'll say, you know, how passionately Mr. Elton's proposing and how awkward Emma is, or she'll say that Mr. Martin and Harriet have, you know, spoken again, and you get nothing. And of course, they have to happen on stage. So I found myself sort of trying to read sort of conduct manuals on how someone would have proposed, thinking (laughs) Mr. Elton would definitely have consulted one of those and then Mm. steal his voice. And then I had to kind of take and run with a mention where Harriet's talking about how Mr. Martin has this little, very pretty little Welsh cow And I was like, well, they need something to say to each other. So let's make it a flirtation around this cow Mm. and how much she loves the cow and it's her cow. And then when she's disappointed at him, she says, oh, I don't call it my cow anymore. And then when he proposes, he says, the cow is yours and I am yours and everything (laughs) is yours. And it was just trying to find something from Austen I could steal and sort of flesh out so that the dialogue that she implies could be there.
4: And how does it feel to try and write like Jane Austen?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Terrifying if I think about it as trying to write like Austin. I think I try and, because I've always got some dialogue from her that belongs to a particular character. I'm just trying to write like that character and she's already given me their rhythms of speech or their tics. Like, Mr. Elton's really easy because she has him saying exactly so all the time. Mm -hmm. And also her sentence structures are so elaborate. They're quite easy to sort of riff on. But yeah, I wouldn't be confident enough to write a whole scene in the style of Austin. I feel like I can just, yeah, mirror little bits in the architecture of bigger scenes, I think.
3: So this might be a question more of like context and the specific situation you were in at the time. But why Emma of of Jane Austen's novels?
2: Well, it's sort of a, a mixed answer because. I I had adapted Emma once before, a really short version for The Edinburgh Fringe. So it it is a novel I feel very close to because Mm. I knew that, you know, my mum wanted me to grow up handsome, clever and rich and (laughs) reaching the age of 21 with very little to distress or vex me. So I was like, okay, have to live up to Emma. Um, So that was something that attracted me to it. But... In this case, it was because the American Shakespeare Centre commissioned it because I'd done Sense and Sensibility for their tour Mm -hmm. and they wanted something for their Blackfriars playhouse. So they do a lot of Shakespeare, obviously, and it's a theatre where there's shared lighting so the actors and audience can see each other, so it works really well for soliloquies. I think... Something like Emma, where it's so much in the focus on one person and one person's mind, works really nicely because then she can have those asides to the audience and sort Mm -hmm. of tell the audience what's in her head, what she's thinking. So that was why I was commissioned to do it. But I feel like, yeah, Emma's also close to my heart because it's it's about a really fallible heroine. I mean, she's horrible. A lot of the time I had to cut down the horribleness of her dialogue Mm -hmm. when she's being bitchy about Robert Martin to Harriet. But she's so human and so flawed and she learns so much and I find that... Yeah, a lot more attractive than some of the more like Lizzie in Pride and Prejudice. I know she gets things wrong, but she's so funny and so perfect and everyone loves her and I feel like with Emma she gets you, you feel with how much she gets wrong and how much she has to learn.
3: Mm. Yeah, I agree. Lizzie's very much a character who makes doing everything wrong look perfect. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and, you Looks know, she can attractive. like have the perfect mud up her skirt or whatever <laughs> yeah. even then. But yeah, Emma's a really interesting character to be named after. I think it's quite yes. an unusual.
2: It's not like being named like hope or patience or charity (laughs) or something is it yeah I think mum was thinking she'd rather I got things wrong and was living a really nice life (laughs) (laughs) and then could learn from it um and I think Emma does have she has a really good heart I feel and I I really wanted to capture that because she you know she cares about her father so much she does really feel it when she hurts people thoughtlessly Mm. so I feel like she sometimes gets underestimated because she hides it so well but I think she does have that yeah, that real warmth and energy and caring about people beneath her kind of self-conceit and Mm. totally,
3: Totally. And I I know that we're kind of fast getting off the topic of adapting, but I really identify with Emma as well, because there's that feeling of when people do good things why do they do good things and mostly it's because they want to look good and people want to yes. feel like good people and they want to feel like they're like helping people and that's kind of self-absorbed and like that's sort of what emma's like all the time like yeah she wants everyone to think that she's like kind and a perfect matchmaker or whatever it is and she's doing it to look good but so does everyone everyone does good stuff to just to look
2: good or totally. bad stuff they think is good to look good yeah and she's got nowhere to put her creative energy i feel mm. that's really important like what is she going to do other than match? matchmake (laughs) if she's interested in people and she has such a limited role and yeah and that was one thing i liked about the Romola Garay adaptation where they had just this real sense that emma's never left tybury she's never seen the Mm. sea like her sphere is so limited partly because of you know staying with her father who worries so much for her and that's true for loads of the characters with an older relationship relation to look after Mm. and those kind of ties of home and i thought it yeah the novel really stages really shows that
4: Mm. You mentioned having to cut some of her dialogue. Yes. Obviously, if you start from the point of view of lifting the dialogue from the book, you have way too much. Right, exactly. How do you decide what you keep and what you don't?
2: I mean, I feel it's partly a rhythm thing of having a sense of how long a scene should last. And often in Emma, there are a lot, people take a lot of stages. I think that's true in a lot of Austen's dialogue. They're kind of tiny steps with each line of dialogue. So there's the bit where Mr. Knightley is worried that Frank has really hurt Emma and wants to comfort her, but also is really jealous of Frank. And he comes in saying sort of, oh, Frank, he's an abominable scoundrel. And by the end, he's like, I wish Frank Churchill very well. You know, Mm -hmm. I hope hope things go well for him with Jane. But there are so many tiny bits where he's like, oh, he's he's such a child of fortune. He's so lucky. And it kind of step by step by step gradually gets to that point. And I just have to squish it so that Mm -hmm. it's sort of scoundrel to well, I suppose he's not as bad as I thought, Too, I wish him well in the three steps. Um, yeah, so I, I feel like that's the only way I can sort of bring myself to cut it. There's also, there are a lot of jokes um, and some of them weren't really well on the page and some of them don't translate as well to the stage if they're kind of little passing references to something that was referred to three pages back. So I find it's really tempting to keep all of those mm. in, but that's also quite a helpful thing to all, a joke about... Someone's inner nature. Like Mm. there are lots of jokes about Mr. Weston and the fact that he's so sociable, he has no discernment and is always treating fifty people as his particular friend. And there are only so many references that are funny to that on the stage that then they Mm. kind of have to come out.
4: Mm. I remember when we did it at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yes. That quite we were really surprised in the first couple of performances that quite a lot of the laughs came in places that we didn't think there would be laughs. Yeah, I was just going to ask that because
3: when I think sometimes when you handle something written or in isolation in rehearsals and stuff for a long time you lose the sense of what it actually feels like to have an audience and I wonder yeah exactly what were the big laughs and were were you surprised? Well
4: I remember quite a lot of them being sort of not overtly at the actual one-liners and more at the kind of it's not exactly physical comedy because it's not that extreme but the like the way the actors handled props and stuff. So like our friend James, who played Mr. Knightley, I remember him getting a really big laugh in one of the scenes where he had to hold a teacup Because he (laughs) kept picking it up to take a sip and then having to say something, Mm. and so it became this kind of running gag through the scene that Mr. Knightley never actually got to drink his tea, and obviously that's partly the rhythm
2: of the scene that you wrote for him. Right. But it's also just like James kind of doing up and down with a teacup like this. It's just quite funny. Completely. Yeah. I can and I can remember a similar moment when our friend Brian, who was playing Mr. Elton, was proposing to me, and I was playing Emma, and he just kept sort of edging a tiny bit closer, (laughs) and I kept gradually edging away, and. course again it's physical comedy it's not in the script but what was in the script were the lines where he was pushing forward and the lines where Mm. I was trying to put him off Mm. so it was sort of mirroring what was in the script Mm. and yeah because I haven't seen this new adaptation I've done in rehearsal yet and it's still being edited I don't know what's going to get the laughs but I'm wondering if it's going to be similar to to that because in a so the sense and sensibility i recently did at the american shakespeare center there was a scene of extreme awkwardness where so much comedy ended up resting around the fact that someone kept moving someone's chair and it was who they got to sit near and again it's about the character dynamics Mm -hmm. underneath the scene but yeah i think those sadly the witticisms don't always (laughs) register straight away but the yeah the physical comedy that comes out of character relationships tends to be the funniest
3: totally and it's all about how yeah exactly how these people interact with each other and the building impressions you get of like who gets to talk and who doesn't and Mm. all of those things are kind of
2: interrelated in that Mm. definitely and one thing i hope will be funny is we're using the architecture of the theater as well so the the blackfriars has a sort of balcony upper stage and i'm mainly only putting miss bates there when she's out leaning out of her window Mm. and so i'm hoping there'll just be a certain amount of comedy of things going on downstairs miss bates coming on kind of going cooey and sort of (laughs) interrupting and disrupting and that's a kind of visual representation of what she does anyways I'm hoping that will get a laugh but we'll find out
3: and what is your favorite you mentioned the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma which is your favorite adaptation of of Emma other than of course your own play
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm really really torn about that because I I saw the Gwyneth Paltrow one at quite an impressionable age and I feel like Jeremy Northam as Mr Knightley mm. had just a gigantic effect mm. on me, especially the bit where he goes. She says, "We can dance together. We are not brother and sister." And he goes, "Brother and sister? No, indeed, we are not." <laughs> and it was that sort of switched it. Yeah, sexy Mr Knightley. I felt that was very important. But I did like in the more recent Romola Garrow one the way that there was more of a sense of lots of children have been sent away from Highbury, and they kind of really explored that backstory of Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill because of money or because of death not being able to be in their hometown and what it means when they come back. And so it was kind of the deeper Mm. sort of social problems were really brought out. And they really emphasised Emma's relationship with her father. And I really Mm. liked all of that. But I felt like they did a lot of slouching. And I felt like the language was quite slouchy as well. It didn't have the same sort of correctness of Mm. Austen and I feel like I really like the way rituals of bowing and curtsying and uprightness and over the top politeness I feel like in Austen if you have all of that there that's what makes it sort of interesting and that's what makes the sexual tension happen because Mm. it's all the buttoned upness and then what's going on underneath and I felt like they were so relaxed I was like oh yeah (laughs) they can just say they love each other and so I liked what they were doing with intimacy but yeah so I think it might be the Gwyneth Paltrow one because it had it kept that buttoned upness though I can Mm. see why people don't like her as an Emma but I did find her quite a likeable Emma so yeah I'm torn <laughs> and I think Kate Beckinsale was an excellent Emma but I saw yeah. that one years ago because it is such a tightrope isn't it because mm. I think Austen said that Emma was a heroine no one would like but her and I feel like it's really hard you can follow that vision and be true to mm. it but you do need your everyone to be on side with Emma or the emotional mm. impact just goes so it's kind of a risky move but yeah. it's brilliant if you can and Jane Austen was super bitchy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's forget. That yeah. yeah you read her letters yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs>
2: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: So the first and arguably the most famous adaptation that me and Caroline are going to talk about together is the 1996 Emma starring Gwyneth Paltrow. I feel like this, although it's by no means the first mainstream adaptation of Emma, This is the first one that I can remember entering my cultural consciousness. And I think it's probably the most famous one still if you said, oh, you know, I'm going to watch Emma tonight. This is this is what people would think of. Right.
4: Yeah, definitely. And I think that has a lot to do with the star power of the people who were cast in it. And as well as just the fact that it was a really successful movie, you know, at the time, a lot of people saw it. And then I remember it being on TV quite regularly, actually, when I was a teenager, I think maybe the BBC even had the sort of film distribution rights to it and used to show it like three or four times Mm -hmm. a year. I might be imagining that, but it was definitely regularly, but Yeah, the fact that Gwyneth Paltrow, an American, how dare they, was cast in the lead, but she's a fairly major celebrity. And then also you've got some, you know, some great British actors in there as well, like Jeremy Northam as Mr. Knightley. And my personal faves, actually, of any people in these roles are Phyllida and Sophie Thompson as Mrs. Bates and Miss Bates.
3: Yes, really, really fun.
4: Sister and mother of... Austin aficionado Emma Thompson. We should not forget. But yeah, I think they really steal the show in this adaptation.
3: So it's a it's a really interesting cast. I feel like one thing we maybe should mention, which is kind of depressing, and um, we will get on to like the content of this adaptation quickly, but. This has recently taken on a new kind of cultural significance in that it's a Miramax film, which is Weinstein's mm, production yeah. company. And Gwyneth Paltrow in the big New York Times piece about Harvey Weinstein mentions Emma because Weinstein hired her for the lead in this Emma. And that was the role that really catapulted her to fame. And it was before shooting began that he kind of called her to his suite at the Beverly Hills hotel and they had this meeting that she's talked about lots in the new york times and in other places so it's it's now kind of part of the history that is really kind of coming to light now about weinstein and how he how he treated you know beautiful young actresses Mm. at that time which is really sad but i feel like it would be weird to talk about this film without mentioning that kind of at this point in time
4: no, definitely it's for sure now part of a strand of films that will always have to be seen in that light mm absolutely
3: yeah and it's sad because i think for austin for so many women it's kind of the, these are feminist texts for many people you know that's a retrospective analysis for sure but you know that is something that a lot of people see in these austin heroines are these kinds of like strong feminist icons and emma is so bold and so cheeky so it's mm. really it's really sad especially to think of that role being subject to such rampant and awful sexism but moving on to the content of the film. So I feel like movies are always at a disadvantage when it comes to adapting Austin purely because Austin novels do take long periods of time. They're set over long periods of time. There's lots of character development involved. There's lots of, I don't know, like extended scenes of waiting often. And I just think often they seem to suit a serial format better. And there's something about this film version that where I feel like there are some plot lines that never get fully explored in the way that I'd like them to. And I guess to dive straight in with one, I think the Frank Churchill plot line isn't as good in this as in some other adaptations. I don't know about you. what do you think about that.
4: I definitely agree with that. And I, th- I think it suffers from two things. One is the lack of time to develop its subtleties. It has to be quite blunt because of the time constraints, Mm. but then also because I don't think Ewan McGregor is a very good Frank Churchill. Neither
3: do I. That's so interesting, because there's something very um, wet about Ewan McGregor, for want of a better word, and Frank Churchill, there needs to be this glint of kind of malice in his eye where you're not really sure whether he's a good guy or not, and I don't think Ewan McGregor really brings that to this role.
4: No, and also, I think, as well as the glint of malice, which I agree about... he also needs to have something of the George Wickham or the Mr. Willoughby's about him, which is devastatingly attractive, mm. but definitely bad. Mm. like Charm. That way, yeah, that sort of <laughs> devastating charm where a woman can look at him and be like, I know you're bad news, but I kind of like you. Yeah. And he doesn't have that. Like, he looks too nice. He acts too nice. I think of that scene where, you know, the, the singing scene with Gwyneth Paltrow's singing and he goes and joins her. In other adaptations, that's kind of sexy Mm, mm -hmm. um which i think is how austin portrays it like he kind of oversteps the bounds of propriety to sort of join in song with a woman that he's not engaged to and is openly flirting with and all this kind of stuff in this film it's just like oh nice singing well done yeah
3: and there's also you miss the kind of i think he both sings with emma and then also obviously gets jane to sing and Mm. i think duets with jane and i think there's this sense of kind of arrogance of you know, Mr. Knightley steps in and is like, you're going to tire Jane out if you keep making her sing in the novel. And I think, Mm. yeah, that's kind of that that lack of awareness of what's appropriate, not just from a propriety sense, but from a, like, empathy sense of kind of dominating conversations and all that kind of stuff. You don't really get any of that with him. And Gwyneth Paltrow's Emma, I think perhaps suffers from a similar... Dilution. I don't know what the right word is. She's not as salty as she could be. She's 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 no. also quite a nice. The whole the whole production is quite a nice version of the story of Emma for me, and th- that yeah, goes for Gwyneth it as is. well.
4: Yeah, the I think the standout character. Well, there, there's there's two standouts really. The first is Jeremy Northam as Mr. Knightley. Of course, yeah, I, we heard. My friend Emma say earlier that for her, he remains like the typical, the only Mr. Knightley. Even all the other research she's done into it, he's still there. And I have to say, I kind of agree with that. He pulls off the combination of handsome, reserved, grumpy, but Mm good-hearted, I think, in a really good Mm -hmm. balance.
3: Because Mr. Knightley and Frank Churchill are the two romantic choices that are seriously posed to Emma throughout this novel. And you need both of them to be sexy. And mm-hmm. in this one, you get a really great, sexy Mr. Knightley and Jeremy Northam, but you don't get it in Ewan McGregor. So it's funny because I don't know if any Austin adaptation for me has, has pulled off both.
4: Yeah, I agree with that, actually. I think there's a really, really good Frank Churchill in the TV adaptation we're going to come on to mm-hmm. later, but the Mr. Knightley, it doesn't quite you know, match up to him. But yeah, you're right. For the purpose of the plot, you have to believe like they are equally plausible choices. Mm -hmm. It can't be that, well, obviously she's going to end up with him because that guy's awful Mm -hmm. or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And then the other character that I do think is really good in this is Alan Cumming as Mr. Elton.
3: Yeah, we really trashed Alan Cumming in a recent episode of the podcast. Yeah, we we did. He is very funny in this and it's a comedy role like Mr Elton mm-hmm. is you know he's a figure that appears in several Austen
4: he is ridiculous and he's meant to be ridiculous yeah and he's what's and... the what's
3: the equivalent in Pride and Prejudice the
4: Mr Collins
3: Yeah exactly there's an equivalent character in Pride and Prejudice in Mr Collins there's always this kind of choice where when they declare their interest in the heroine you as a reader recoil you know that she's going to mm-hmm. recoil There has to be that choice that who's kind of like the pragmatic, practical choice. You know, he's a vicar, he's got good standing, but he's absolutely not the one for her. And that's done very well in this story. But I think the key element of Emma, so as all listeners will know, because you're an Emma fan, why else would you be listening? The key storyline is that Emma is matchmaking. She's done one, one to two, depending on how you look at it, successful acts of matchmaking so far. And she is now constantly trying to matchmake her friend, Harriet, who she thinks that she's doing a great favor to because she's slightly poorer. Um, and she's getting confused all the time about who's actually got their eyes set on her. So for that, you need to have like basically two plots running at the same time in Austin. You need to have the one that Emma mm. thinks is happening, which is that Mr. Elton and Harriet are greatly in love and it's going to be wonderful. And Frank Churchill is very interested first in her and then maybe in Harriet. And Harriet's interested in Frank Churchill. And then you have to have the real plot line going on, which is that Mr. Elton's interested in Emma, Frank Churchill's interested in Jane, and <laughs> Harriet's interested in Mr. Knightley. And you need all, you need both of those plot lines to work at the same time. And for me in this one, I when it finishes, you're like, wait, Frank liked Jane?
4: Yeah, I know. It's not plausible at all. Also, I think you need to have with Mr. Elton a slight spice of he is interested in Emma, but he's more interested in money and status. So he latches on to Emma initially because she's wealthy and an heiress Mm -hmm. and, you know, has great standing in Highbury. And then when she turns him down, he just goes off and like finds a rich Mm -hmm. woman. And uh, there's a really, I think it's in the novel, there's a really good bit after he comes back with the awful Mrs. Mm. Elton, where Emma says to Knightley, you know, there's a smallness about him that you saw that I did not. That's a
3: lovely line. And that's also very, that's kind of key to Emma's character development as well, because she is a a Mr. Elton-esque figure. She's very interested mm. in wealth and status and she's interested in securing it for her poor, penniless, you know, miserable little friend. Yeah. Who she's actually so patronizing about even in the guise of kind of niceness. And yeah, I don't know how much Gwyneth Paltrow's Emma gets that element across. So I don't know, you end up kind of I think without that level of character development, it kind of loses some of its its kick.
4: Yeah, I think that's true. I also think that for all that I like Jeremy Northam as a Mr. Knightley, I don't think he's quite critical enough of Emma Mm-mm. because I think part of what's really good about the novel is that Jane Austen really tackles head on the fact that at the beginning, they have a very brother-sister relationship where he's constantly finding fault with her and constantly ticking her off and constantly like... Implying that she's idle and not intellectual and all this kind of stuff. And then they kind of morph into more a relationship, a romantic relationship of equals. But in order for the payoff to happen, you need at the beginning for him to be quite harsh on mm. her. And particularly the pivotal Box Hill scene. You need it to be really, really unpleasant when he like dresses her down like she's a child. Mm. I think... And I don't... I feel, like you were saying, I think the whole thing is too nice. Mm.
3: I would say, I think of all the adaptations though, Jeremy Northam is the best chastising patriarchal yeah. figure. And I think because perhaps we're slightly uncomfortable with that element of their relationship, even though I think for many readers, it's what's sexy about it. None of them re- none of them really seem to push them that hard. I can't remember from the Kate Beckinsale one, whether they push it in that.
4: Well, actually they do a bit more. I think because Mark Strong who plays Mr. Knightley is just a bit more naturally like gruff mm. it kind of comes off also a very key point in the Kate Beckinsale one that I had forgotten until I rewatched it, is that in the proposal like bit where they find the end where they finally agree mm. that they love each other he says you know I held you in my arms when I was three weeks old when I held you in my arms when you were three weeks old and she says almost as a joke well I hope you like me as much now as you did then it's gross (laughs) which is is accurate to what happens in the novel do they I don't think they say that
3: in the proposal scene in the novel though no so that's ramping it up
4: that's ramping it up it is true that he's like 16 years Mm. older than her and has known her since she was a baby Mm. but it's because their families are very close but yeah, that as far as I'm aware is the only adaptation to like insert that into the most romantic moment of the plot and kind of really they they're basically like spelling out in big letters that like we have gone from a familial relationship to a romantic one. Look at us. Yeah. So yeah, that's I something I kind of dig that,
3: that though. Is weird. I kind of dig it. But yeah, I think there's um yeah, I I basically agree that there isn't there isn't loads of that in this but i think it is one of the ones that that does the sternness of mr knightley slightly Mm. better than other ones um but like it's an it's a nice film i think it it just loses some of what is so clever about the original novel because it doesn't really have the time and the space to to do it properly and you can't really blame them on that but there's like six subplots in Emma so it's really hard yeah. to and they all take place over it's what like from February to uh, when Frank Frank Churchill arrives in February and then it's getting towards winter by the end of the novel I think so it's like well then
4: there's but there's also a Christmas element as there's well there's a Christmas isn't there? element and
3: Box Hill is definitely yeah. in the middle of summer so it's like a full year it yeah. must be um yeah but it's just I don't know. It's it's a difficult task, but we will go on to discuss what you can do when you have a bit more time later when we talk about the Romola Garai version of Emma. Now we're going to talk about the BBC adaptation of Emma starring Romola Garai in the title role that came out in 2009. This obviously has an advantage over the film adaptations of Emma because it was a serial so it's in four parts and it was weekly on Sunday night so it was your classic kind of Sunday night period drama mm-hmm. and it is all available on Netflix if you want to watch it now also
4: i i have to insert a very important Brackets, not really important statement here, which was that this show was filmed in the village where I grew up. It's amazing. That's so cute. (laughs) Pretty much entirely, actually. So all the shots of the village square and the church and everything are all the village in Kent where my parents still live. And also Emma's father's house, Hartfield, is a big mansion in the next village along. They basically did the whole thing in one place.
3: This is my favourite of the Emma adaptations, I have to say. Yeah, I think Romola Garai is... Brilliant. I think she's a great Emma. And even if she is slightly nicer than the book Emma, there's something about her that is kind of. I think she plays the youth of Emma very well because Emma's 21, yes. which is pretty young. And she does have these kind of like Marianne esque flights of fancy where she's like suddenly decided that a. Possible scenario is romantic, so she gets carried away with it and match makes like crazy. And she does ca- bring that kind of vitality and the silliness of Emma to the role quite well. I love the way she smiles, and you can kind of like see her entire gums when, <laughs> and yeah, she's very good at these kind of facial expressions where she's a bit confused but excited and like ca- just like get- getting swept away with the whole thing. um you know when she's giggling and very giggly bitchy, that's she, she does really well with that. And I think yeah it starts from you know we get like a little pre-story bit where we see emma as a baby and we get some of her backstory explained and some of the other characters backstory explained which austin kind of does in you know like great rambling paragraphs she can allude back to the to the personal histories of characters in a way that you can't really do in scenes in an Mm -hmm. adaptation so they get around that by having this kind of pre-bit which i think is very good it and very very helpful throughout the whole rest of the adaptation because it gives you so much extra context to the lives of emma frank churchill and jane fairfax which is great
4: i really like that too and it helps really bring out two themes from the novel that other adaptations don't really manage to do i think first is this idea of emma jane and frank as all either orphaned or children who've lost a parent, lost their mother, and almost like as equals who then have very different lives because of what happens to them. Mm -hmm. You know, Frank gets sent away to rich relatives, Jane gets sent away to not so rich relatives, and Emma stays at home with her father. Mm -hmm. So they all have very different upbringings, but they are... Basically the prologue shows you they do have this like parallel track in some ways mm-hmm. and then they come back, they don't see each other for 20 years and then they all come back to Highbury and the events of the novel then ensue. The other thing that I think that prologue really brings out is Emma's relationship with her father. definitely, And, the, and it really shows you why her father behaves like he does because he's lost his wife and you know he's all that's left to him are his two daughters so of course he becomes massively overprotective and sort of ridiculous about their welfare Mm. not least when he's seen like other fathers in the village have to send their daughters or sons away so you know he really holds them close and that they show that in this adaptation to be like a really driving force
3: totally and it's sort of glossed over in some other adaptations Mm. the the enormity of the impact of Emma losing her mother has on the rest of her life and Emma's not you know a grieving character or anything but her position is less stable she's kind of like a more insecure woman of status because she's a girl and you know she's on her own with her dad and her, her elder sisters are all married and comfortable and as you say the relationship with her dad being really really important to her because you know there is a moment where towards the end of the novel where emma finally gets everything she wants and is engaged to um mr knightley but then she has this kind of like fear that she actually can't go through with it in case she ha- has to leave her father yeah and that's a huge thing and it doesn't really come across in all the adaptations but i think also because they had michael gambon in the lead role in the in that role of, yeah. of mr woodhouse they want to make it a bigger part i think yeah, so there's and that element is... too but
4: it is a beefier part in his hands as well, not least because they allow him to inject this subtle note of like hy- hypochondria as well, mm. that because of the fact that his wife's died and he's so fearful for his daughters, he is also convinced all the time that everyone's going to die from everything. Mm-hmm. And that is in the book. There are all these. And so in the adaptation as well, there are these little asides where he says like, well, Dr. Perry says that children should never eat cake mm. and, you know, he, he should he's on instructions to do walks around the garden but he like hangs himself in loads of blankets because he's worried about being cold and so that That's just sweet. in the background makes him a more fully realized character i think
3: and we were talking with emma in the first part of this podcast about how you do want to ramp up those elements of comedy that are, that easily translate into contemporary mm. comedy scenes so things like don't eat where's the doctor the doctor would tell you not to eat cake oh he's off eating the cake like that's a joke that makes sense to a 2017 audience just as much as it does to a to a contemporary austin audience so it makes sense that some adaptations really ramp that up and i do think the gwyneth paltrow adaptation does have a line in riffs of his hypochondria but they're definitely more seen as throwaway comic lines than a general thing about the mr woodhouse character definitely And I think that some of the other characters also seem slightly more faithful to the book, even though, you know, that's not necessarily the only marker of whether it's a good adaptation or not. But I definitely think, as we kind of mentioned earlier, that the Frank Churchill Jane Fairfax relationship is a lot more believable in this. And they really rank up, ramp up how misleading Frank Churchill Mm. is. They really, one thing they really emphasize in this adaptation is him whispering little insults about jane fairfax who he's in love with and potentially secretly engaged to to emma as a way of building intimacy yeah. with emma so he'll say to emma you know jane looks terrible look at her hair it's so awful or he'll say jane's so quiet i could never love a, a quiet girl which obviously has the added implication of jay of emma being a very lively person and him saying that that's attractive so it's kind of like a flirtation with her, and it's but it's all used as a smokescreen to try and hide his his relationship with Jane Fairfax. And, and it really it totally makes sense then when the final reveal comes, because you're like, oh, of course, it was a massive, massive secret. He was trying to deflect it by mm. flirting with Emma and being mean about Jane. But it's also really, really mean on Emma because it's then really- she's just totally lost and she's being totally misled. And it's like he doesn't care about her feelings at all.
4: It's also really really mean to jane i in re-watching mm, totally. this ep- this adaptation came away from it with i feel so so sorry for jane mm. because she basically has to let herself be negged publicly in order to conceal this secret and also the motive for concealing the secret is that if frank lets his rich art find out that he's got engaged to a someone as lowly as Jane Fairfax you know he, he'll he be cut off without a penny mm. so basically there's some questionable motives there because he's sort of saying like I do love you
3: but I love my
4: position and status more and mm. I would like to preserve that totally
3: um, and, and there's a whole period isn't there where it seems like the marriage is not going to go ahead mm. although we're unaware of it in it, during the course of the events and so then his negging becomes barbed in a whole nother way where it's like the resentment that they're not going to go through with their their engagement. And it's really like a kind of horrible, grumpy ex, basically. Yeah, it's really
4: horrible. And actually, the bit where at the end, after... um in this adaptation you see the marriage of harriet smith and robert martin and afterwards outside frank churchill kind of sidles over to emma and says well you know i guess it's all turned out for the best like he's a bit shamefaced but also a bit brazen Mm. and emma kind of looks at him and she says like treat her well and i genuinely felt in this adaptation on this rewatch like that's as much of a plea as it is a joke
3: yeah because exactly. Emma's saying,
4: like, you treated me badly, but I'm okay because I'm getting married to Mr. Knightley. She has to be married to you now. Yeah, exactly.
3: And there's, I think, the the 1996 Gwyneth Paltrow Emma treats Harriet as the tragic character. Yeah. Which is, I mean, they're both, they're equally sympathetic and equally kind of mistreated characters. Um, And I think Tony Collette is great in the 1996 yeah. Emma as Harriet. And you do really feel for her and and it's so horrible to see her go through not one, not two, but three kind of mangled attempts um, to find love. Mm. And I, I think there's something really moving about choosing Jane as the, as the more tragic figure on the periphery of Emma's life. And they both have, you know, an equally good claim to it, and whichever one you choose is interesting. But I do think it was a bold choice from the 2009 serial, especially because sometimes it's easy when something's been adapted a lot to just kind of stick with the prevailing yeah. version of the story. But yeah, the Jane character I think is a lot more is a lot more interesting, and it means that the um, what are they called the Miss Bates, the Bates. yeah, sorry, uh, and it means that the is character, the Bates characters become more well-rounded as well and Tamsin Greg is amazing as she's so good this. she really she's gets so the dialogue the way that in in the novel it's written with all these sort of Emily Dickinson style that long dashes where mm. she's like I hope I I could maybe I can see why you wouldn't and it's like all these false starts and and she's so good at doing that that nervous speech pattern um yeah it's it's just really there's some there's an extra level of sadness i think to this adaptation Very much so yeah that brings and that even
4: up. in in the design like the thing you know where jane gets this massive piano mm-hmm. which everyone's like oh jane you're so lucky and then you see this shot of the piano in miss bates's living room and, it's and it takes up like, fully half the room and she can't even play it because it's pushed up against the wall. Um, And only Mr. Knightley
3: is the one to point that out, that actually this is not a considerate gift at all. Totally. We should talk about um, Johnny Lee Miller Mm. as Mr. Knightley, who for me is actually very good at the um, kind of the kind fatherly vibes he's very good at being just out of the just out of shot clearly thinking about all the characters in a very sympathetic empathetic way like with the piano scene where he's like this is a really really terrible gift they didn't think at all about how much and he he plays that very well but sadly he's not sexy enough
4: (laughs) he's not sexy enough at all also (laughs) it is a sad fact this is just my personal problem with it as well that about 18 months ago, I got completely hooked on the American Sherlock Holmes adaptation, Elementary, mm-hmm. in which Johnny Limit plays a version of Sherlock Holmes that I find really fun. And he is now permanently associated with that role in my mind. Oh. So when watching this, I was like, why is modern day Sherlock Holmes like wearing a weird waistcoat? Um, so, yeah, that slightly conflicted with it for me. But, yeah, he's not yeah. sexy enough. He's also not really mean enough in places, I yeah, think. Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think he's he's, he's a he, bit
4: too patient and understanding.
3: It does bring out the brother-sister element of their relationship quite well. Yeah. But I think in the original Aust- Austin novel, it's not really a brother-sister relationship. It is like a father-daughter relationship, even though he's, mm, yeah. he's, a, he's a relation that technically fits more of a brother role. And this, they kind of ramp up the like, oh, like arg- jovial arguing as siblings would do that kind of side of it but not so much the like chastising not so much the like i'll take care of you emma not 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 so much the hashtag daddy element of the relationship (laughs) which is you know and again a valid interpretation and you can choose whichever you like but for me i think the 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 kind of more stern fatherly paternalistic slightly aggressive mr Knightley role is just more sexy and fun
4: I think so. And I think definitely truer to Austen's vision of it, mm. because one one of the things that contemporary readers sometimes have problems with with Austen is that she reflected her contemporary ideas about marriage and, you know, age gaps between partners mm. and all this kind mm. of stuff. So I think sometimes people try and smooth out the fact that Mr. Knightley is 16 years older than Emma, yeah. has occupied this paternal role throughout her life and, and by modern suddenly, day standards
3: it would be yeah. very problematic and yes but that's kind of part you know th- these novels are often so much about fantasy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know the totally. fantasy of having of marrying for love and also getting all the stability you could possibly need and you know they're, yeah. they're kind of ridiculous it, sometimes in their happy endings but that's I don't know I like that fantasy and the, and the and- Mr. Knightley fantasy is a, is a fun one and Emma has it even more ridiculously
4: than pride and prejudice you know in pride and prejudice two sisters marry two wealthy best
3: friends mm. in emma two wealthy brothers marry two sisters yeah yeah you know it's like a it's like twins marrying twins or something so it's something yeah. very uh, unlikely about it but yeah but it is it's a great adaptation and It's just kind of like it's quite nuanced, isn't it? And quite, and it teases out some of the really fun stuff about the novel, which is maybe missing from from the Gwyneth Paltrow one for me.
4: Yeah, definitely. It's also really beautiful. I would say that because of where it's set, but Mm. I think objectively, it's really beautiful. It is definitely. And I also think I know Emma said earlier that she finds it a little bit slouchy. That the. The posture and the etiquette isn't maybe quite yeah. so. Oh, and there is a scene where
3: be. in Box Hill where Frank Churchill is literally like lying in Emma's lap. <laughs> yeah. And you're not like, this definitely wouldn't fly. Like, this would not. It's like, I mean, that alone is like so inappropriate that Frank Churchill becomes a villain. But yeah, exactly. I know what you're saying.
4: Yes, I do think there is that. But I think that is overcome by mm-hmm. the really, really good character developments some really interesting plotting which as we've said they can do because they had four hour long episodes
3: the slouchiness is a good way of translating sometimes what is what is inappropriate and what isn't like the mm. fact that there is some kind of you can visibly see that two people touching in a certain way is not acceptable that translates really well to a modern audience in a way that perhaps yeah. just just language sometimes doesn't so I and do that's get that. true
4: of the box hill scene actually mm. that um a i really like how they transition into the box hill scene where emma's like looking at the book and then it mm, fades that's into really the pretty exact scene, yeah. which is really pretty and then yeah the fact that as Emma was saying, it is this awkward, dramatic situation where it explicitly says in the dialogue that Emma and Frank are talking in front of seven silent people. So it Mm. is this like weird Mm. silent circle of characters. Mm. It's basically all the principal characters are in this one scene. Mm. So yeah, the fact that they're kind of writhing around on the picnic blanket and just generally being hugely inappropriate does hit you over the head with the fact that this is such an awkward moment and so horrible.
3: Yeah. But then Johnny Lee Miller can't quite bring the... uh badly no. done he doesn't he doesn't tell her off quite sexily enough so it's quite sad but yeah uh definitely I think one to re-watch and kind of like appreciate the nuances of because I think at the time it, I, I was you know nearly 10 years younger in 2009 eight years younger and I didn't really get how good an adaptation it was mm. and now I really think I do <laughs> And now I'm joined by Alice Vincent, who's an arts and entertainment writer at The Telegraph and basically clueless scholar, foremost (laughs) clueless expert. (laughs) Alice wrote a long read a couple of years ago that was essentially an oral history of clueless where you spoke to loads of people involved in the movie and talked about it kind of from start to finish. Mm -hmm. So obviously you can't talk about Emma adaptations without talking about clueless because I think for a lot of people, clueless is just one of the most iconic Austen adaptations, even if you don't immediately think of it as one and you know a little bit about the motivation behind making emma and making that adaptation
1: yeah so clueless was written and directed by a woman called amy heckling a lot of people are like oh well you know she was reading emma and she got struck by inspiration it didn't quite happen like that she was pitching to a tv company who asked her to make a series and they wanted a series based in high school about the cool kids And Heckling said that she always wanted to make this kind of very perky, very optimistic character, which she admitted was weird because she's quite sarcastic and dry (laughs) and cynical. She says, there were all these ideas about a very happy character and I wrote them into a pilot and I didn't want to do it. And it was a time in my life when I was very unhappy with the way things were going in a lot of areas. Mm. So she sort of went back to the drawing board and she kind of remembered that in college she read Emma and she loved Emma. But... She also remembered about how when she was reading Emma, it reminded her a lot of this kids' TV show she used to watch, which is this weird TV show called Gidget. It starred Gidget. Sa- Gidget. I've never heard of Gidget. Like Gadget, but with yeah. an eye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it starred Sally Field. And in her description, Sally Field played this girl in California who lived with her father and talked to the audience. And she was very positive and she just wanted to go surfing. Mm. And that sounds quite familiar if yeah. you've ever watched Clueless. In one of these episodes, she says that Gidget makes this new girl over and then the girl becomes more popular. And Gidget and she becomes kind of snotty and that is where Clueless goes Mm -hmm. and she sort of mushed that with the aspiration and matchmaking of Emma and she created Clueless.
3: Yeah and I love the way that there are kind of small little changes between the two where it's like instead of matchmaking it's a governess in Emma isn't it and instead of matchmaking her governess with someone she knows it's her actual teachers at school right Um, which is a really kind of it's the kind of unusual element that I think makes Clueless stand out compared to other kind of like high school teen movies that you have these characters like the teachers who get a little bit more well-rounded. They have an emotional life as well. Yeah, yeah. totally and I think it's interesting because when I try and think of like very positive bubbly lead women in stuff there aren't actually that many. No, or sure. they're normally really annoying. Yeah exactly or, or that yeah they're kind of like you dismiss them and yeah. you laugh at them a bit rather yeah. than engaging with them properly and That's one thing that's so great about Cher is that she really is this figure that you kind of would want to ridicule, but you can't because she's she's too too human. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And a lot of that's due to the casting of Alicia Silverstone mm-hmm. who bizarrely was like sent in for this role because she was starring an Aerosmith video that was very big at the time. And she's like rolling around and it's like the most nineties thing in the world. <laughs> rolling <laughs> around in this uh, motorbike, flicking her hair about. Bear in mind she was like sixteen at the time, it's in hindsight quite creepy. And she got cast and all of the casting directors have these very cute stories about the first time they met her, about how she had this fancy drink with two straws in it, and instead of lifting up the drink, she bent her head down to drink out of yeah and stuff like just alicia was just like a very cute and endearing character and i don't think she was acting that hard mm. i think she basically is share
3: and we've talked a little bit on the podcast already about how emma's a very bitchy character <laughs> in the novel and austin is a very kind of like bitchy writer in mm. a lot of ways And I think that works so well in this adaptation because everyone at school is a bit of a bitch Mm -hmm. without it making them a horrible person. On an older character, I think the way that Cher talks about some of the boys at her school, Mm -hmm. there's a kind of class element to the way she dismisses people that's very snobby and horrible. And with someone who's a little bit older, that is like the most disgusting kind of Mm -hmm. behavior and really repulsive. But because she is this kind of like growing and learning teenager and because... That's what high school is like, especially portrayals of American high schools. It really kind of works.
1: Yeah, it's just funny. And it's sort of one of those integral parts of the high school movie trope. You've got to have the stratification... Um, you've got to have the different tables and there's mm-hmm. that perfect scene when it first starts and she's introducing the new girl tied to the school and in the process introducing the audience to the different social groups and she's like and that's their script and these are the stoners and those are the jocks and those mm-hmm. the jewish american princesses mm-hmm. and that has been picked up and taken for every film since you know that she's all that or mean Girls. so totally. everyone's done that
3: totally and it's social climbing isn't it essentially yes. and Austin like yeah in that exactly way. that's such a key part of novels from that period and and later is that kind of like matchmaking of social climbing but that's also what everyone's doing in like freaks and geeks and like it's all about trying to be like well i want to hang out with those people because they've got social capital and what happens when
1: you fancy someone from the wrong side of the track yeah which happens both in emma and of course in clueless it's just one of the greatest
3: stories ever isn't it of all time that kind of like romeo and juliet but also even amongst friends Mm because that's really what emma's about in a lot of ways is harriet smith coming in and her being like right i want to make friends with harriet i want to like show her how great she is and I'm gonna do that by like essentially introducing her to the right people rich people people you know who are from good backgrounds people in society and that's obviously what Cher's trying to do with Ty she's just trying to integrate her into this kind of different sort of society but she still thinks that she's being like a nice person in doing that rather than seeing that the whole structure is totally messed up. <laughs> exactly. And of course it backfires
1: because yeah. she creates a bit of a monster. Mm. Um, it was funny, speaking to the costume director, she's a woman named Mona May and obviously clothes are very important in Austin and Emma mm. and they're also very much in, like essential to Clueless. Mm. And Mona was sort of saying that tie represented what American teenagers were wearing when the film was made, mm. which was in 1994 and then she was grunge. So Seattle mm. grunge, Noverna and everything. She looks great.
3: So, she looks... Looks
1: so great, yeah. And of course, this is all done away with because what Mona was doing in that film was future-proofing. She mm-hmm. was creating. She was taking borrowing a lot from the catwalk. She was borrowing a lot from European fashion. She was just making stuff up, and that came to define the rest of 90s fashion mm-hmm. in a way. Bloomingdale's looked at Clueless and were like like they decided what to buy for the next season off the back of it
3: that's amazing yeah. isn't it it was remarkable yeah and I feel like there's been a lot of nostalgia recently for that kind of clueless aesthetic like when that um Iggy Azalea video came yeah. out where she was in the same outfit and I just I feel like I just see that doing the rounds that very preppy fluffy pink you mm-hmm.
0: know 90s Charlie XCX does yeah
3: it a lot.
1: totally it's everywhere uh, Jua does it a lot but the funny thing is it was never really a teenage fashion In America. It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. And so, yeah, Ty had this stripped away from her. Cher creates her into one of them, and then Cher gets a bit too big for her boots.
3: One change that I think is interesting from Emma to Clueless is in Emma, Mr. Knightley, the kind of brother figure, is 16 years older than, than Emma. Now, I think if Paul Rudd's character was 16 years older, than shares character that I don't know if it would be creepy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we all love a daddy fantasy. But it'd be a bit. It'd be a bit much, right? So a
1: little bit. I mean, I think that's. But that's the fun thing about Paul Rudd is that I. I don't think I fancied Paul Rudd when I first watched Clueless. No. He seemed so grown up and so cool. He kind and of seemed like one of my brother's boring
3: friends. Totally like, boring, like edgeless so dry. and kind of non-threatening and which you all is-
1: fancied elton who is the douchebag that ty <laughs> is set up with
3: and of course named after elton yeah mr austin. elton yeah exactly but i think that's interesting because yeah in the original austin it's so much more about that paternal almost moralizing when he says like badly done emma it's all very like is that kind of like fatherly type of mm. telling off whereas i like that in clueless they go for this much more kind of like friendly oh you're such an idiot mm-hmm. you don't know right from wrong in that kind of it's a, it's a lot more like a it's woke
1: moralizing totally, for the 90s, totally
3: yeah. um there's definitely chemistry between them but even if you're not invested in that chemistry from the outside if you're not like fancying paul rudd right right it still works and i
1: think the other thing there's a genuine i can watch that film so many times and we obviously all know what happens in the end but i still remember being genuinely shocked when she has that revelation she's like I love him I love him and you're like oh my goodness how do we not see this romance because a bit like Emma you know she's always the bridesmaid never the bride and she Cher is so content with her clothes and her friends and being the queen bee in the nicest way possible you don't even really think of her as needing a romantic no partner no and so when she's like I love Josh it's a genuine revelation I think
3: yeah and there's a sense I think with Emma and with Cher that they'd be fine on their own. Yes. Like, you don't you don't think, oh, well, you know, they need a partner. And in the original novel, there's all these figures like Frank Churchill, like Jane Fairfax, who are orphans and, or for some reason, don't have access to money. And marriage becomes so important for survival mm. for mm. those characters. And Emma's obviously so privileged, Cher's so privileged. It's definitely not that sort of support they need from a relationship. And they're also so fulfilled in their lives and... So happy as characters that when someone like Ty comes in, who's obviously a little bit more uncertain about herself and kind of needs that external validation Mm. so much more from other people.
1: And it is a means of her getting into the group. If she became Elton's girlfriend, then suddenly she has kudos. Yeah it's um yeah, it's an interesting one
3: and then there's the other key change of course is that elton is gay that's the twist right in clueless where it, it isn't is elton. elton
1: who's gay but the one that she falls in love with whose name has
3: oh my goodness he's the rat pack oh, boy yeah the frank churchill character what's yes. his name i can't remember his I name i can't believe either. we've
1: forgotten it <laughs> i can anyway. i can remember half the things he says that <laughs> like when he's like do you like Billy Holiday? And she's like, I love him. Like, <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, um, that's going to irritate me. But yes, he turns out to be gay. And yeah. again, that is something that I think really appeals to the more innocent viewer, much mm-hmm. like the Josh revelation, mm-hmm. because it's not really played. He's just seen as a sophisticate. Mm. And her infatuation for him is such that you're kind of swept along in it. Mm. And then, you know, he's revealed to be gay and... And I think that's actually another example of Amy heckling being a, you know, ahead of her time because his homosexuality isn't really mocked or parodied. It's not a punchline. It's not a punchline. It's treated quite sensitively. And similarly, he is portrayed as this wonderful individual who has an incredibly sophisticated sense of art and Mm. appreciation of aesthetics Mm. in um, quite a grown up way. They said that casting him was a nightmare as well. Really? yeah because they couldn't find anyone who had that like smooth rat pack vibe right he basically didn't do anything after that he said he was typecast as the weird gay forever
3: <laughs> it's so funny because it also really ties into what this character or characters what they what they value Cher and Emma are so swept up in this idea of like having a perfect life with perfect couples around them and everyone's and in almost the right sexless as yeah well. exactly and it's you know there's a whole the whole portrait painting thing in Emma <laughs> right there's all this stuff going on that's about art and about taste and about dress and stuff and it's then suddenly out of nowhere they're like oh wait there's something that I value way more than these things yeah I just wasn't even aware of it yeah which is really interesting
1: and I do think the ways that although Amy Heckling kind of ripped up Emma she was the details that she picked were mm. really like winks mm. almost. So the fact that Ty keeps like a sweaty towel yeah. of Elton's. Which is very similar to the bandage in the original exactly. novel. Yeah. And the mixtape of Rolling With My Homies. Yeah. I think is it
3: like plaster and a pencil or yeah,
0: something? Yeah, it's literally
3: like a little bit of bandage and a, a pencil. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: In her box of treasures. And, you know, then they have that wonderful kind of that
3: symbolic thing that everyone's done at some point where they like burn it all and they yeah. like say a spell to get over there exponentially. Yeah. totally and for me it just feels so there's something so that I can't even put my finger on so I'm going to sound quite stupid but there's something so innately teenage about Shakespeare Austin and these kinds of teen dramas and it's why these these adaptations work so well you know like 10 Things I Hate About You and you know all these kinds of Shakespeare adaptations from the period and She's the Man. Yes. There's something very kind of like silly about them and very kind of like ritualistic sometimes and very, I don't know. I think it's
1: because they're relatively... I mean, obviously, the writing has outlasted its creators mm. and it still resonates so strongly. But as pure entertainment, it's relatively juvenile in the mm. themes with which it's dealing. Mm. It's people, it's love, an it's embarrassment And embarrassment and shame and, like, yeah. cringeworthy situations and ones in w- which are derived from real life. Like, who hasn't... I'm not saying everyone's cross-dressed in order to go to a ball. <laughs> but, like... <laughs> well, we've it. all felt like we have. We've all, like we all felt like we wanted to be someone else to fit in socially. Totally, yeah. So we just love Clueless, don't we? Do you oh, have forever, a favourite moment? I mean, there are, there are so many. And like every time I watch it, which is often because it's only 90 minutes and I'm a big fan of short mm. films, there's something else in it which I, which I kind of pick up on or I click on. Um, but yeah, you can't beat you're a virgin who can't drive Cher. And she's like, that's way harsh time. It's iconic. It's an yeah. iconic
3: moment. In and it's film. also,
1: it's such a good insult because they are two things that she, Cher can't really do anything about. Yeah. Yeah. She can't go and get laid and also she can't <laughs> drive. And in the teenage world, those are status indicators. Oh, yeah. Ages.
3: So, yeah. Well, do you fact- have a favorite bit? I don't know. I really love the much uh, referenced Statue of Liberty <laughs> speech. <laughs> um <laughs> it doesn't say rsvp on the statue of liberty right. Just
1: it's the fact so she's comparing
3: great. it to a party that's yeah. her only point
1: of reference is a party
3: totally and, it, <laughs> and it's so it reveals at the same time this extremely silly privileged almost unempathetic individual on the one hand and then on the other hand this hu- enormous heart Humous.
1: yeah exactly the humanity of it all and and it's similar to how she like did all that collection drive and she gave the people who'd lost like you know these poor poverty stricken people her ski kit Mm. and her someone's like why will they need that she's like
3: well they will have lost everything (laughs) exactly (laughs) it's so funny it's because it's this kind of you know wanting to seem good and wanting to be good and not really quite knowing how to do it because you're so sheltered but there are too many to count really Mm. i think maybe one of the best austin adaptations of all time
1: i'd say so well done amy heckling (laughs)
3: Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman.
4: If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find
3: the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there.
4: We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're seriouslypod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you You've enjoyed on the show.
3: We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com.
4: And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,